Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm here today back again with Tal Savani, who's president and CEO of the Ayn Rand Institute. And we want to talk about what Paul Krugman wrote recently in the New York Times and about what he does or doesn't understand about freedom. Uh, Krugman recently wrote, uh, when libertarian goes libertarianism goes bad, liberty doesn't mean the freedom to infect other people with COVID-19. Donald Trump, of course, disastrous leadership is an important factor. But I also blame Ayn Rand, or more generally, libertarianism gone bad, a misunderstanding of what freedom is all about. Uh, this was Paul Krugman in the New York Times, October 22nd. So this invited the questions. I don't think, I think Krugman's wrong about everything. And I know Tal Savani can help me uh, show him the error of his ways. Tal, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here again. Uh, you challenged, after this, after this piece came out, you challenged Krugman to a debate. Uh, uh, where are we? How did all this come about? And what's the... So first, uh, the piece was not called When Libertarianism Goes Back. It was called How Many People Will Ayn Rand Kill? Oh, my. So, uh, and so that, that is first. Secondly, uh, he didn't bother to read what Ayn Rand said about pandemics and what is the role of government in a, in a situation of a, an epidemic or a pandemic. Uh, he didn't do the work, didn't do the research to understand what she had to say about it. And uh, so we called it uh, up, you know, called him up on it. And uh, just to give you an idea of how corrupt uh, this journalism type is, uh, she said the opposite. She said that if you really understand what individual rights mean, then you understand that if somebody uh, could infect you, then it's the role of the government to intervene. But in a way, in a reactive way to quarantine people that are, are uh, testing positive. So she had a full solution for that. And it's not what we're doing right now in America. But I so think most- what, what, what was her solution? Yeah. What was her solution? I'm dying to hear what a better solution of what we're implementing right now. Well, she starts from the principle. The principle is what are individual rights? You don't get to threaten my life to diminish my life, to uh, stop me from exercising my, my human capacity to think, to reason, to act, to keep my property, and so on. That is the principle. If you carry uh, a, a disease that infects my life, and there is a question, which is very complicated, and we need to deal with that in the, in the realm of law, is what is the threshold? Because if I had the flu three, four years ago, and I uh, you know, or somebody came into a, an airplane with a, with a red nose, I was not, oh my God, it's going to kill me, right? Because flu does kill people. So there's, a, there's, some, you know, there's some kind of a threshold that we have to decide on as a society of what const constitutes uh, a risk. But let's say that uh, COVID is a risk for some people. You know, we're reading uh, stats that if you're older than 70, 80 years old, it can go up to 10, 14% of mortality rate. That's significant. You don't want to sit next to someone who has 15% chance of killing you. 
So you're threatening my life. So we delegate the protection of your life to a, a monopoly of force called government. And they need, when it's proven that somebody actually is threatening my life, to then stop them from doing it. So the idea is test everyone, or at least have give a lot of incentive to test. And if you turn out positive, quarantine, because otherwise you're threatening people's lives. So I'm all for quarantine uh, or, you know, tracing and then, and then uh, quarantining uh, people who test positive and are a risk. But if you're not, what, who is the government to tell you where to go and what to do if you're not risking? So, so those whole, this whole misunderstanding of, no, the, the standard is my life and the government has to prove that I'm a risk to somebody else to limit any of my actions. So they cannot, they're not in, in her world. The government has not, no say in if to open or close my business. It's none of their business. Right. Unless, unless I am actively risking someone's life, lives. And there are many, many things we, we have to deal with that. It's a very complicated philosophical issue. But what he says, I just want to give you, well, first he didn't read what she had to say about it. He assumed, right, because he doesn't know her or understands her, in my mind, a level of genius. Secondly, he said in one of the remarks, somebody know, um, told him, but this, she, she doesn't say that. She says the opposite. And then he, he replies, it doesn't matter what she said. It's matter what people think she said. And if you asked you ask me once, if you remember about subjectivism, this is subjectivism for you. It doesn't matter what happens in reality. It matters what I think or what other people think is the reality. Well, let me jump ahead to a little sneak preview of us talking about objectivism versus subjectivism. I mean, it, uh, I guess subjectivism is the view that truth resides only in the mind. Yes, it's, it's coming from the mind and it's projected into reality, yes. And this leads to moral relativism. Yes. And this leads to well, you, your behavior. You can be of any, you, you set your own standards for moral uh, right and wrong. It's a little bit more nuanced. If you look at the, the subjective philosophers, they say, no, but we have to have moral codes. So where do they come from? This is where you started having collectivism. Because if you and I cannot reason by ourselves or define a code of morality that is somewhat objective, then the collective mind will do it. And this is where uh, we deteriorated. It started with Kant, maybe, of course, before him, but Kant really elevated that. And then Hegel and many other German philosophers who created uh, what we call now the left. And uh, every communism, fascism, Nazism, if you think about it, it's our, all socialism, are all forms of if you and I cannot reason and not be independent in our uh, understanding of morality and how to derive moral, a moral code from reality, then it's, it, we, we revert back to what everybody else thinks, or maybe when we can't know what everybody else thinks or what the majority thinks, then we have a ruler who will tell us what the majority thinks. Well, yeah, and the majority thinking something does not make it true. It just makes it what the majority thinks. I mean, mo most of us, not most of us, but many of us, me, read Ayn, Ayn Rand uh, as, as when I was younger and, you know, Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Shrugged's a, a long haul to get through, but it's, it's still a pretty good book. And there's a certain joyousness to Ayn Rand's philosophy in that she, uh, you know, there's no more, there's no greater moral good than achieving uh, one's happiness. And, uh, 
but this happiness requires a rational respect for reality. And it really, it really celebrates the individual as, uh, as the object of, uh, of happiness. And, and, you know, you'd think with the, with the feel good society that America and the West have been, has been in for the last 70 or 80 years, that that would have more appeal yet. You know, you know, I went to Woodstock and that was forever ago and everybody pretended we were all independent, but then you see all these kids that grew up and they're now fans of, uh, of, of of rule by experts and, and government locking us down. Um, talk, talk about the joy you find in, in Ayn Rand's philosophy. Um, my life before Ayn Rand and after discovering Ayn Rand, pretty late in my life, I was turning 40, it was 10 years ago that I first picked up uh, Atlas Shrugged and then read The Fountainhead. I would say it was elevated uh, to levels I couldn't think are possible because she gave me a model of what it means to live uh, a human life, a prosperous life, a happy life. She defines everything so clearly. She says something like happiness is that state of consciousness which proceeds from the achievement of one's values. And then she breaks it down. It's like why we as human beings have to go through the action of pursuing values in order to derive happiness. This is who we are. This is our faculty. See, I, I think she, for me, she's uh, the happiness philosopher. If people really understand what she means and she, she regards you as, as the individual, as the sovereign, the, the independent mind who has the capacity and, then, and, then, and, the moral, and the moral duty, if you will, to go and pursue your happiness in, in many domains, in the domains of creative pro productivity, which is what we do with the power of a conceptual mind. Look at you, everything around you was created by someone. It was an idea, an integration of reality, then put into practice the microphone, your screen, the pictures behind you. It's all products of the human mind doing what the human mind does. So productive and uh, capacity. And then of course, relationships, romantic relationships. He was the most romantic person ever. Um, and um, and uh, friendships and deriving value from relationship with other people. Yes. Domain of leisure, fun, art. People don't know about this an unbelievable breakthrough in the world of aesthetics that she wrote called the Romantic Manifesto, where she explained what is good art and what is bad art. Why, what is art for? Uh, so the scope of what Rand offers you is, is unknown. And uh, hopefully the time between, uh, uh, between when society will, will understand what Rand brings to the table and now is hopefully will be shrink because she can bring another renaissance as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, well, we're not, we're not merely a product of our experiences or our background, but hers are very illuminating. Was she born in Russia in 1905 and, and, and grew up to end up in the Russia ruled by Lenin and then Stalin and then escaped when, when she escaped in the late 20s? 1926, she moved. And then, 21, what, she moved to the U.S. Then she heads, she didn't go to New York, to Brooklyn. She heads to Hollywood. And she ends up in Hollywood. And within a couple of days, she gets hired by Cecil B. DeMille. And within a couple of days after that, she meets the love of her life, who's an actor in one of the films. And then she spent a tremendous amount of time writing screenplays and, 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 and really... Uh, good stories. So her, her background is very human, very, uh, very appealing. And it's heroic. I think, you know, if you see what she had to go through, if you read her biographical interviews or listen to them, it's, it's, 
she was starving, literally starving, eating what she could afford, uh, but not giving up and working 12, 14, 16 hours of a day writing, getting her English to be the best it could be. And, and you see her accent remained very heavy uh, until, uh, you know, she, she never improved it, but her vocabulary, I, 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 it's very hard to find other authors with that level of expression. And um, she was Did, so hardworking and the, her, just, if you look at what she was able to achieve in one lifetime, it's well. Did she did she write about or talk about the what Lenin did to Russia, which is what we're seeing today, which is where you stop treating people as individuals and individual souls, with with rights uh, rights accruing to them uh, versus groups and classes. I mean, one of the first things Lenin did was he demonized whole groups of people. And we think about the Russians, but it wasn't just Russians. It was shopkeepers. It was this class. It was that class. And you look at what's happening in America with the balkanization of uh, sex, gender, um, race, uh, you name the category. We're no longer individuals, but we are uh, lumped into whatever classification we've been given. You're right. There's so many enemies to the individual. Anything other than you, any, anything other than you and your own free will. If you think it's not just the gender and sex and now it's, you're all about your genes. It's the fact that people like Sam Harris even will tell you that you don't have free will. Sam, Sam, Harris, are not really Sam Harris is another podcast, another podcaster that's... Uh, yes, Sam Harris has the podcast. Uh, they're very famous. Uh, Many, like people in the Silicon Valley that I spend years and years with, unbelievable engineers. And then you go eat lunch and then you talk about philosophy and politics. And you're like, you want to tell me that everything you just talked about in the board meeting and created is not you? And they say, no, 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 it's my genes, it's my environment, it's my teachers. It's anything but me because we're taught that we don't really have free will. By the way, well, Think well, about Mar how the left is trying to. Yeah. That's Marxist. That's Marxist determinism. Everything is material, and that's right, exactly. the problems we exactly. have. I'm sorry. I keep keep continue. <laughs> no, this is exactly what it is. It's determinism. It's it's and that leads to many other issues. That then you see are are uh, just what defines what the left is all about. It's anything other than individualism and responsibility, Obama saying, you didn't build it. So who did, if I didn't? Somebody had to, right? It's the collective mind, it's we, it's not the you. Ayn Rand has this beautiful little novelette called Anthem, where we forgot the word I. You're not allowed to say the word I. It was taken out of the, of the vocabulary, it's forbidden. And as you know, words are tools of cognition. So what happens when you take, and when I go and speak to high schoolers and middle school kids, I ask them, do you think this is fiction? Because she describes a world in future, a kind of dystopian future where it's all about the collective. There's no I. And then the ego, uh, the hero, rediscovers what it means to have I. And, and it, it's attacked from all different directions. Um, the, the you, because if, it, if life is about you, it means a lot of things. We have to leave you alone. You're the king, not us. Not anyone can tell you what to do, how to pursue your happiness. And this is the genius of the founding fathers. This is why she loved America so much. Well, she was in love with America. 
Well, I, I she wanted, wanted to come from Russia to Hollywood to find that Hollywood is promoting communism. Well, I, I want to talk with you about the, the source of all of this, which, which I believe is God, but she's, she doesn't think that and we, we can talk about it. But uh, before I jump into that, she did say this about America. I can say, and this is kind of, you know, she uses big words, with, with, not as a patriotic bromide, but with full knowledge of the necessary metaphysical, epistemological, ethical, political, and aesthetic roots that the United States is the greatest, the noblest, and in its original founding principles, the only moral country in the history of the world. Wow. Isn't that a love letter to a country? Yeah. Yeah, I just said, you know, given the, given the 1619 project where everybody is now saying, not everybody, New York Times is saying well, that the, the slavery is the founding, uh, founding principle of America, um, I, I would love to have Ian Rand alive today to, to uh, have a little chat with the New York Times. <laughs> 1619 project. Sometimes I wonder what you would, how would you would react? You, you hear her Q&A sessions in the Ford Hall Forum she used to do every year from the 60s to early 80s. And oh my God, what she does with those questions is unbelievable. Well, she also wrote a tremendous, you know, the thing I think is interesting. I just, I, I read recently that she, she's got that famous speech by John Galton, Atlas Shrugged, that runs for 60 pages. And I just found out that that's double the length of the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> she not only outthought him, she outtalked him. <laughs> the Individualist Manifesto. That's what it is. Yeah. So what, we need to talk about the role of God in all this because she did not, she was fairly silent. She was an atheist, but she was silent in her novels and a lot of her writings about God. And I, I believe that it's all, we do have a creator, but, but he, get, he turned around and gave man the, dominion and so it makes us a, a first mover in that sense mm -hmm. and that we we don't nearly we don't we don't create but we do make and what we do with with all of our our attributes has been wonderful um how do you how do you, let's we've got we've got we've got six minutes left we can discuss <laughs> the existence of god <laughs> Let me say this in a positive way. She was just a proponent of the individual and our ability yeah. to reason. That's and if you, we talked about subjectivism, she, she thinks this is one permutation of philosophy. The other one is what she called intrinsicism. By that, she means the truth is not with you. It's in reality. And you have to discover it. It needs to be revealed to you. And she says, no, that's wrong as well. We need to be scientists all the way. Nothing is given. You have the human consciousness and reality, and there is a method for the human consciousness to know reality, and that's the scientific method. You observe, you use your senses, your percepts, and then your concepts. And as long as you're grounded in reality, that's the breakthroughs that she think, I, I think she did in ethics. She said, if you understand how human mind functions you, and you see its efficacy in, in understanding it, we can derive morality from reality. We don't need 10 commandments. And um, we don't need to believe anything on faith. Faith is the enemy of reason. And this is why she derived a whole set of uh, ideas and morals, if you will. She has, in a way, seven virtues because she explains each one's virtues to the function of the human mind and why you need to be productive, why you need to have honesty and integrity, because you cannot fake reality. 
right? It's just like throwing sand, sand in your engine. So she offers between the intrinsic, what you call, and the subjective, what you call an objective morality. And so I can tell you one thing, Bill, that when I was six years old, my grandmother asked me to put the yarmulke on in Israel. And she says, it's time for you to put the yarmulke because God is looking from above and you need to respect and I went to my, my uh, uncle's room, I remember, I was shaking. And I said, God, if you're going to show up and prove to me that you exist, I will be the most religious person in the world. Because I'm serious about ideas. And I was always, I don't know why I am. Um, but he chose not to show up. And my inclination as a kid, and I don't know why, just the way I am. I went back to my mother and said, I cannot believe in something that I have no proof to. Now, I understand that a lot of people, what we call the metaphysical level, cannot deal with the idea of like, so who created all of this? This is unbelievable. And so there's a, a separate question about the universe and a big questions, metaphysical questions about how did it come to be? Did it come to be? Is it eternal? Is it infinite, infinite or finite? Uh, if you put those things aside, again, what, to remember, what you need to remember about Rand, she is an advocate of reason. She wanted to call one of the ideas, not call it objectivism, but reasonism, but it doesn't sound good. So, uh, but this is what she is. I think she's an advocate of reason. She is an Aristotelian, taking Aristotle to a whole new level in my mind. It's like Einstein, what Einstein did to Newton, Ayn Rand is doing to Aristotle. And uh, think what happened to humanity when we rediscovered Aristotle, brought, up, brought back the age of reason the, uh, the, the scientific revolution, the political revolution of America, the industrial revolution of America. And that's all Aristotle. And it's not Plato, who is the, you know, the one looking up to the sky and, and looking for revelations. So she is. He believed in the philosopher king to rule us. If you think about it, that's, if, if you cannot by yourself. You live in a Platonian uh, world or something right now, not an Aristotelian world. Oh, we're, we're declining back. Uh, there's a great, great book by- you, know, you and I agree on so much. I want to leave the God part aside, but you know, I think it, the God's the source of all this, and even our reason is a product of, of his. But then I guess we're back at first causes, and we don't need to worry about that. We need to worry- No, I think there is a metaphysical question that you're right. We can- agree or disagree about a metaphysical question. But what I find that there's a lot of people who do have this belief that, you know, we were created by, by God still in a way compensate all the way up in, in philosophy. Think about metaphysics and then epistemology, ethics and politics. They get to the right conclusions. I think the metaphysical uh, basis is they have to rethink it. But regardless, a lot of people get to really good conclusions and fight for the right things in an ethical perspective. And, and, that, and that's where I think the, you find common ground. I think I, I agree. You know, I agree. At least as a, as a practical matter. Uh, and, you know, back to practical matter, and we opened with this a bit, and uh, Paul Krugman, I do want to get at this idea. She wrote on civil disobedience, and she said it may be justifiable in some cases um, when individual disobeys a law to, in order to bring the issue to the court as, as a test case. And she goes on and on. At what point with, say, masks or lockdowns or other ideas which are not are, are highly uh, debatable, even though some people think they aren't, and there's science 
strong science on, on at least, and I don't want to get into that particular debate, but what, at what point do we say, look, enough is enough. We need to engage in, in 1776 all over again. That's a great question. And I think one needs to understand the context of, of what we're dealing with. Uh, so when you find that the government is, is, is in a place where it's completely uh, uh, risking your life and diminishing your life, you have to think about what it will mean to revolt or to disobey. And we're not in, a, in an age where with muskets we can uh, revolt against the king. So I think uh, it can all be thought if we, you have a program, uh, preferably a legitimate program where you can uh, find a way to, uh, in a nonviolent way, try to push the government and its policies to a different direction. And I think a lot can be done before we talk about taking our guns and, and uh, disobeying. Um, we have to remember that we're, the, the, the achievement of uh, applying individual rights in a political uh, context is a huge achievement. And it's not given. If you look, look at uh, history, 99% of it is complete anarchy, right? Um, and we, 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 we need to be very, very careful. Uh, at one point, if somebody is endangering your life, you have to think really hard and get active. And a lot of people need to get active. I, we did everything we can to scream and shout and explain. And got a lot of people, we put out a white paper of what will be an American response to the pandemic. Uh, if we had enough intellectuals, and by the way, if you think about how society has changed, it's not with guns. It's a political activism. It's, it's intellectual activism that brings about to change. People don't remember, but 100, 150 years before America, we started having those new ideas about individualism that then manifested itself in a revolution. So first you have to be armed with great ideas and then to be very, very smart and, and uh, careful about the way you go about, because we gave the government the monopoly on force. They have nuclear bombs, they have F-16s and 15s and whatever they have right now. And uh, you cannot fight with them, but you can change the minds of the people who govern the, the, the monopoly on force. Well, I think so that's, I I think that's the way we need to have, yeah. I hear a lot of people talking now, well, we're going to have a, a revolution and buy ammunition. I, 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 that is that to me would be catastrophic. It's going to be horrible. That, no, we're, you're going to have way bigger problems. In a way, if you, believe left, if you believe the hard left, as I do, is nihilistic, and they don't really have a big yes. plan to change things, they just want to tear things down, getting into an armed yeah. conflict or doing something radically stupid like that in the 21st century would bring about their aim, which is the destruction of the West. It will be more destruction and it will, uh, yeah, but, but let me say something positive, which I find so, uh, yes, so let, let's wind, I, we got a couple, let's of, do that. Let's do, let's do positive. Right. So Rand said something, why is evil evil? It's because it's incompetent. It's unable to, it's not able to understand reality and deal with it. So remember this one thing, evil is impotent. And in the end of the day, we, the people who really understand how to deal with reality, to reason, to build, we know how to do things way better than those nihilists who don't know how to build anything. It takes us years to build a statue like David behind me. It takes a second to destroy it, 
right? But they don't know how to build anything. As long as we are here to produce, they can, uh, you know, loot us and mooch us and all, you know, all of that that is well uh, described in, in Atlas, but we are the source of energy and, uh, and they're impotent. So I'm not afraid. I, 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 why? Why, I so completely agree. And Tal, thank you. That was, uh, that's a great way to end our, our, our most recent conversation. <laughs> we'll be continuing to our next one and maybe we- Every time we talk, it feels like we have so much more to talk about. We've got another 19 shows to do and we gotta, we gotta get into the, the, the God discussion, but we'll save that <laughs> for next time. Uh, so Tal Tavani, President and CEO of the Ayn Rand Institute, highly recommend you get involved with them and take a look at their website and all the writings and seminars that they produce. Uh, they're, they're performing a great service for freedom and, and the individual. Uh, and so thanks to you all for listening. Uh, we'd, we'd love to hear what you think. Let us know in Parler, Facebook, and Twitter, where you can find The Bill Walton Show. Uh, for previous episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, and of course at thebillwaltonshow.com. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes.